Welcome to episode 101 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's November 19th, 2022. And in today's episode, we're going to discuss HIV and AIDS in Kenya. Our guest today is Alex Otenio. Alex is the Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Arcadia University in Philadelphia, where he's also an Associate Professor in the Sociology Department. He's been teaching at Arcadia since 2001. Alex's research interests are in public health, human rights, and human services. He teaches a broad range of courses, including introductory sociology, ethnographic film, and courses on HIV, AIDS, and homelessness. He's presented his work in dozens of talks over the past couple of decades as well. So welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, no, thanks again for, for coming on. So as we reflected, Merle, on the 100 episodes we've had in the past, it was clear to us that we have not covered HIV AIDS nearly as much as we probably should. And we could probably say the same about our spatial coverage of Africa, which has been the topic of only a few of our early episodes. So for listeners who are interested, we've covered sleeping sickness with Mary Webel on episode 27, Ebola mostly in West Africa with Adia Benton on episode 43. And by the way, Merle, this was the notorious post-January 6th episode. That was interesting, let's put it that way. And we also covered animals, humans, and the environment, primarily in South Africa, on episode 77 with Jules Scottness Brown. So to have another episode on AIDS, we thought to revisit Africa as the continent has experienced much higher prevalence of the disease compared to any other place in the world. And especially as many in the West have kind of moved on from thinking about the disease as impactful on their daily lives at all. So I'm actually looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, as you know, Lee, I'm almost done teaching my pandemics course that I've been teaching all semester, which is kind of funny because I imagine you're going to tell me you're in like, you know, week three or something. But Next week, we have off and then two weeks, but one of those weeks is actually reading week where we can't assign anything real. So we actually only have one week left. But all of that is to say, I've now taught actually HIV AIDS as one of the diseases that I teach. And since we actually got to the 1980s, the students, you'll be shocked to learn, have actually perked up and were far more interested once we got to a time period they can like kind of comprehend and contemplate. So you mean they weren't that into the Justinianic plague and the Black Death? No, not nearly as much. We'll leave it at that. But I did realize that I wanted to have more angles to talk about than just kind of basic information and history. Plus, you know, I focused it significantly on the other episode we did on Agely that you didn't mention, which is with Rich McKay on Patient Zero. I think sometime around when we talked to Adi as well. So I'm looking forward to broadening out my knowledge, which I can then use with teaching moving forward. And I think rather than one class, right, I hope this conversation allows me to do two classes, right, and probably cut back some of the Black Death stuff, which I know will make you cry inside, Lee. But that being said, how are you doing, Lee? What's happening? Are you on like week three of your course now? Actually, I completed week two. Yeah, we missed one week because of the elections day we had here a couple of weeks ago. So I just concluded the second week on the pandemics class, not in the other class. So far, so good on the pandemics. We are somewhere back there in antiquity. Next class is going to be the Justinianic plague for me. I'm actually looking forward. I mean, having completed multiple conferences and like larger scholarly events, I'm looking forward for really a few months now with nothing. I mean, no like big conferences or large special events being planned. 
And hopefully that'll give me some time to work on one of the research projects I've been interested in in the past on, again, sixth century environment and so on. Yeah, it is funny that you guys are on a very European schedule, right? So like you have these conferences that kind of interminably go on through August, September, and even like the beginning of October versus like for us, right? We're at the end of the semester. And I mentioned the same for you, Alex. And so like we actually have now just entered conference season where you get this kind of crammed in everything happens from now through you know the second or third week of january and then you go back to teaching again and everything ends yeah so that's not the case here for sure and actually most of the conferences i'm going to have over the spring are going to be abroad i mean some in the u.s some elsewhere but what about humoral are you guys getting ready for thanksgiving yeah that'll be next week right so you know nothing's really happening actually my school just does the whole week off as fall break although it's barely fall still and it seems slightly strange to have week 14 of the semester of 16 weeks be the week off so we'll leave it at that i don't arrange the schedule but i went to gymnastics this morning with my daughter she didn't want to participate she sat on the sidelines actually for most of it i think the problem is and this is something i've touched upon and you and i've talked separately about this this state takes sports much more seriously than any other place I've ever lived. And so this is like a very kind of formal gymnastics course where like they're, you know, told do the beams, do this, do that. And my daughter just kind of wants to run around and, you know, be a little kid. And so I think she doesn't really like it all that much. So this isn't part of her preschool? No, no, no. This is like a whole separate, like we paid for a Saturday morning gymnastics class. Like, come on, man, you got to get with the program, right? You got to get your daughter into like whatever sport you want by age four because if she doesn't she'll be terrible and never allowed to play again she'll be ostracized at school and she won't make the israeli national team i mean i'm obviously kidding about all of this but you know so she chose gymnastics rather yes. than like soccer or something yeah my son chose soccer he is a very calm child and so he actually is pretty good at dribbling and kicking the ball, but he doesn't like to like take the ball from the other kids, which is, you may imagine, is part of the point of soccer. And so he just refuses to be aggressive, which, you know, I'd rather have a very kind of empathetic, really nice kid than, you know, kind of a crazy berserker one. But, you know, it, it kind of limits his soccer playing. So I think we're going to try T-ball in the spring because that's a little more maybe up his alley. But other than that, my parents are, I think, in the air right now flying from where they live to Oklahoma for the week and so I'm looking forward to that they've obviously never been to Oklahoma not that I had ever been to Oklahoma before I took this job as listeners to this podcast now so I will report back next episode on what they make of it although as you know Leo, I'll have to be somewhat careful because I do know my parents listen to this podcast with regularity and give us feedback so you know it'll be reported that they saw puppies and rainbows the whole time and Alex, are you in Philadelphia right now? Or is the semester wrapping up? Yes, I am in Philadelphia. We're gearing up for Thanksgiving as well. Unlike you, we uh, still have class on Monday and Tuesday. We only have the day off on Wednesday and the rest of the week next week. We go a little later, so we will have classes until the beginning of uh, December before exam period starts. Yeah, just out of curiosity. Do all the students just refuse to show up Monday and Tuesday because a decent percentage of mine just left on Thursday. So like half my classes were empty. 
Oh, yes, they are adept at it. And so some of us do some creative scheduling to make sure that you still have class, but it's not necessarily like it, they're not required to be there using some of the effects of the pandemic of like, you know, having some online modules and things like that. So, yeah, a majority of them, I think, have already left and some will likely leave over the weekend. So, yeah. And how about COVID? So is COVID still a thing at all? I mean, is it on anyone's mind or... Is COVID over in like Arcadia University? Yeah, so we still have some awareness around COVID. We're still asking people to get the latest booster, but we're no longer requiring people to show their proof of vaccination. It's assumed that people are willing to participate. There are other viruses, the RSV virus and, you know, the flu virus that is sort of making its way now and impacting everyday life and learning. People are more willing to stay home uh, when they're sick and like before the pandemic when people just show up with their viruses and spread them people also willing to wear their masks on their own without necessarily being asked to do so so i think that you know with there are some benefits from the pandemic while it's a tragedy it was a tragic moment in our lives but it's helped i will say i'm impressed that people are willing to wear masks in your classes obviously we're in different parts of the country and I'll leave it at that. But I'm only allowed, as listeners of this podcast know, to put in masks if someone reports that they had COVID in my class the previous week, then we all can mask for the next week. But based on the emails I'm getting from students, right, which I fully believe, I would say, you know, a quarter of each of my classes has had COVID this semester, and at least another quarter has had flu, you know, in some capacity or another. So, you know, it's going well in terms of sickness. I'll leave it at that. But maybe we can turn now to the interview. And as we always do, we'll ask a broad question. You know, some of the listeners probably are very familiar with HIV and AIDS, right? My students, I asked them what it was. They obviously didn't know what the acronyms were, and they weren't sure what the relationship was between the two of them until I really pressed them on it. So we'll start at the beginning. What is HIV? What is AIDS? So that's an excellent question to start with. And yes, I agree that sometimes it's hard. So HIV is human immunodeficiency virus and AIDS is acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. So HIV is the virus that as it progresses in one's body, makes one susceptible to a variety of illnesses that becomes the syndrome that is acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. That's a good start. And maybe you could tell us a bit more about where and when does HIV appear? So the first cases were reported in Mortality and Mobility Weekly Report, which is produced by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, in June 1981. And back then it wasn't called HIV because nobody had sort of named it that, but it was a illnesses that were found among and what we now refer to as men who have sex with men or gay men in the U.S. and both New York area as well as in the West Coast in San Francisco area. So I remember seeing some research a while ago, and I haven't gotten to the AIDS part in my class to revisit that, but that HIV was actually present or something that may have been HIV has been present for much earlier on, perhaps not necessarily in the United States, but elsewhere. So could you maybe say a bit more about that? Yes, the historical record and to some extent knowledge from scientists indicates that what 
would have been the precursor of HIV was sort of detected as early as the 1930s, and that it might have been sort of a species jump from simians to humans in Western Central Africa. And so you could see some cases, and then in this early 70s as well, that what mirrors what became HIV and AIDS, there were signs of that as well in the early 70s. Yeah, so there is some history that can take us back, but in terms of the way we think about it now, it kind of dates back to 1981. So maybe you can remind our listeners or tell our listeners, depending on how old they are, what were some of its effects in the 1980s, right? How did people respond? How did you can either use the US or use other countries if you want, think about this disease initially, and then how does this change over the course of the 1980s, maybe? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, so in the 1980s, there was sort of shock and difficulty comprehending and dealing with it. There was a lot of stigma. And a little background is that in the late 70s, early 1980s, there was sort of a shrinking of the state, the role of government and public in managing all kinds of things that were public. So that included health. So the CDC, for instance, wasn't really well equipped to address the pandemic and to provide the necessary resources to the scientists and physicians who were tracking the disease. They didn't have the necessary microscopes and capacity to collect the samples to actually track the disease. The earlier versions included sort of uh, fear of people who had HIV, both homosexuals who had HIV, as well as hemophiliacs, uh, people who had received a blood transfusion that included, I think, one of the most uh, vivid cases was of uh, a young man in Kokomo, Indiana, whose house was burned down because there were people afraid of him having HIV at the local school. So it was very difficult. And that's in the US. Similar attitudes could be seen elsewhere in other countries, including Sub-Saharan Africa. So the disease I mean, what we describe today as HIV starts essentially in the United States and spreads from there elsewhere, or how does it move? That's an excellent question. Uh, one could argue that it was developing in different places at different times. There are some indications that it could have, as I was indicating earlier on, that if the species jump from simians to humans, and that there's some indication that it might have come to Haiti through aid workers who worked in the Congo, who are Haitians and came back to Haiti. And then movement between Haiti and the US led to it coming to the US. There's also indications that Africans who are being tested for the virus in the early 80s in Belgium, for instance, were already showing signs of having the disease, even though African countries weren't reporting it yet. And there was some reluctance to acknowledge it back at the very beginning of the epidemic, especially in Africa, where there was fear that it might impact negatively the economic situation with tourism and those kinds of socioeconomic issues. So... One thing that changes over the course of the 80s to the 90s to an extent is public recognition, but also kind of how treatment works. So maybe it's worth touching upon that because that's obviously, I think, a big moment in at least the United States and how people think about HIV. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, including one of the areas that I mentioned earlier was uh, blood transfusion. The naming of the disease itself originally was referred to as the gay-related immune deficiency, which was GRID. And so it moves from being called GRID, which had 
particular connotations around stigmatizing homosexuals and also didn't include hemophiliacs so heterosexuals who had the disease and so the moving to human immune deficiency virus sort of shifts how we respond to it the emergence of formal policies around prevention treatment care and support those evolve over time some countries moving faster than others so where i come from in kenya the pace was much slower than the neighboring uganda for instance and that had consequences in the long run and then treatment doesn't happen until much later and the sort of efforts to improve treatment really takes off in the late 80s early 90s and then for developing countries that happens even later in terms of access to the treatments and what about mortality so i mean obviously it's it's difficult to know even with covid right we don't really know how many people died from covid but what are the assessments about mortality related to hiv yeah, so that's an excellent question. Mortality was a major one. So I'd give you an example in Kenya, where when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, in the 80s, the first cases in Kenya were identified in 1984, which is slightly later than what was identified in the US, very few cases. By 1997, there were projections that more than 80% of the hospital beds in Kenya were occupied by people with HIV or AIDS. And so the mortality actually ramps up there because of poor healthcare infrastructure, because of lack of prevention mechanisms. So that increases. And at one point, there was an estimate that by the year 2000, there'll be 30 to 40 million people infected by the disease. Uh, majority of the people who are dying actually shifted from the US and Europe to Africa, where it was estimated by 2000, when the United Nations declared a global health emergency, was at about 70% of the people were in Africa, even though the region doesn't have as many people in the world. So only in 2000 was it declared a global health emergency? How is it considered before that? I mean, from the like WHO? Yeah, so I think I might walk it back and say the declaration of emergency dates back to around the late 80s. So by 1985, WHO recognizes it as a problem of a global magnitude. By 1987, there's more action in that regard. Jonathan Mann who was the leader of the efforts around AIDS back in 1980s, recognizes the relationship between HIV and human rights earlier on, but the United Nations Security Council deems it a global security issue in sort of 2000, and that shifts in 2001. The United Nations develops what they call the United Nations General Assembly, actually kind of focuses on AIDS as a global problem that declares need for collaborative action that would span the globe. So maybe I guess one last question that you briefly touched upon as well. How is AIDS treated today, right? You know, certain famous people have, you know, Magic Johnson always comes to mind, right? He's diagnosed many, many years ago. He's obviously still alive. So how do you treat people now? Yeah, so the normal treatment now is what they call triple cocktail treatment with the antiretrovirals. It used to be triple cocktail, I should say, but now it's actually a single pill that you could take in a day. It's become widely available in throughout the world, even in places with minimal resources, thanks to an initiative that was started during George W. Bush's uh, time in office, what is called the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR in short. 
And PEPFAP works with countries such as Kenya to provide access to treatment, care, support, and prevention. So treatment is seen as linked to both prevention and prevention is seen as also a conduit for making sure that people are treated early if they get the disease. But it's a pill that is available through mostly global assistance for developing countries. So just to clarify, this is the current treatment and people are supposed to keep on taking this pill for the rest of their lives daily or or on some regular basis? That's correct. So daily, if you have the disease, the reason for testing early is that if you can get tested early, you can get start on a treatment early so your immune system doesn't decline, and then you take it for the rest of your life. There's also now uh, PrEP, which is a pill to prevent the spread of the disease. So rather than as a pill you can take and so reducing, even though the prevention around quantum use as a strategy to prevent uh, sort of a barrier method still remains there good practice, but increasingly there's also folks who can take pre-exposure prophylaxis in the form of a pill as well. And do you know if there are any serious attempts to try to find a cure which would remove the need of pills, which I guess, I mean, I'm not sure where the cost burden is, but someone is paying that that cost, right? There have been ongoing efforts to find a cure, but that's remained elusive. And that tends to be with most viruses uh, kind of difficult to cure. There are increasingly also alternative modes of prevention. So circumcision has been added to the efforts for prevention. Uh, Prevention of mother to child transmission has been sort of increased. So number of young children who are infected because of their mother being infected, that's been reduced remarkably. So that's ongoing. And then prevention education is ongoing. So to get people to just be familiar with the nature of the disease and efforts to prevent it. So that's ongoing. And the burden of the cost of uh, prevention, both the burden in terms of lives lost, the days of work lost, that's ongoing. And, you know, every national government is involved and care about it. But the international community is also sort of involved. It's the Global Fund for HIV, Malaria and Tuberculosis that has marshaled billions of dollars to address. The Gates Foundation has put in a whole uh, bunch of money, for lack of a better term. And the US government through PEPFAR has also invested heavily in trying to help with access to treatment. So maybe we can shift now from kind of setting the scene to more specifically about HIV and AIDS in Africa. And it seems that to me, right, and my students were very surprised to learn, right, that sub-Saharan Africa is now kind of the place for HIV AIDS, right, where the largest number of cases are. When does that shift kind of happen? And how have people basically started to, you know, turn Africa into like the place where AIDS is and nowhere else, right, in this kind of very stereotypical image? Yeah, that's an excellent one. Your students are right to sort of be both alarmed on the one hand and or be concerned and be curious about it. So it's an interesting one because one might argue that we've seen that with the pandemic, that there were places where they were not recording the number of cases and so showing that their cases were very low, yet actually it was prevalent. So that was the case with a lot of African countries at the beginning. So say Uganda had recorded and accepted all their cases. And so their rates were much higher, the rates of infection 
election seemed much higher than neighboring Kenya, where I grew up, and only for Kenya to later on surpass Uganda at rates that were much higher because they became open to reporting the cases and to testing. And so the transition really happens in the late 1990s, where this greater international interest in collaborating with African countries to help address the pandemic, and also because cases just becoming obvious, the number of deaths, as you are asking the question of mortality, when mortality increases, people begin to notice. So that that shift happens in the late 90s, and by the 2000s becomes a major dominant issue, and Africa becomes recognized by the United Nations as a primary area of interest. So as I prepared for this episode, I looked online and I saw a map of Africa with the prevalence of HIV in different countries. And obviously the the sub-Saharan Africa, broadly speaking, had high prevalence rates. And it seemed that the more south you go, the higher the rates are. So listening to what you were saying now, do you think this is an accurate representation of reality or are there still issues with reporting in like countries around the Sahel or in like Northern Sub-Saharan Africa? I want to believe that the rates that are reported now are accurate. They may not be 100% accurate, but I think that it reflects the reality. But even if you go to West Africa, you see some variation. So you could go to Senegal and the rates are much lower. They've always been much lower in Senegal all throughout the pandemic. And in Eastern and Southern Africa, the rates have been much higher. And some of that is largely because of the nature of migration from, say, Zimbabwe to South Africa, the mines in South Africa, the congregation of workers in the mines and the sort of role of sex work. So the some of that that is influenced by dynamics that are social, economic, and the like. So in terms of the context in which the spread happens. What are some other variables then that have, you know, made it so Senegal, right, has lower rates or South Africa has higher rates besides, you know, mobility or socioeconomic work? I imagine, right, we could drill down infinitely to each country and talk about different regions or different cities, but maybe just some general other trends that have driven this would be interesting to know. Yeah, so politics, I think, has a lot to do with it. The response was largely, so if I take Kenya, for instance, as an example, under Daniel Arap Moi, there's sort of a negligence or denial of HIV as a problem until the late 1990s. So the first formal policy doesn't come into effect until 1997 in Kenya. They rapidly improve over time. So now Kenya has become an example that is being copied globally. There's sort of a robust protection of human rights of people with HIV AIDS through the AIDS Prevention and Control Act of 2006. So there's improvement there. In South Africa and Nelson Mandela, it wasn't very thoroughly sort of addressed. And uh, Becky, who followed Mandela's success, um, Becky actually became one of the AIDS deniers. He worked with folks who were denying that HIV causes AIDS, sort of attributing it to other causes, malaria and other ailments. And then religion has something to do with it, in my view. So you could see that in Senegal, which is predominantly Muslim, you see sort of a much lower rates and also the extent to which the health system is improved or is capable of doing outreach and preventing the spread through education. So I'm hearing all these differences between countries in sub-Saharan Africa, but more broadly, can we can we talk about the general sub-Saharan African experience of HIV? Is there like a common experience or is it really 
individual countries or even individual regions within those countries? I think you can talk about, because again, we have a hard time thinking of, as I like to joke with my students, Africa is a country for them. This is a, this is a way that, that is kind of hard to uh, segment even North Africa from Sub-Saharan Africa. But uh, you're right that in Kenya, for instance, if you go to the Western part of Kenya, you'll find a much higher rates in Homa Bay. For instance, Homa Bay County has like a rate that is still above 10%, while the country itself has, the rates have declined to, in some cases, 3%, in some places, 2%. If you go to Northern Kenya, the rates are much lower in Northern Kenya. So even within Kenya, there's so much variation depending on where you are. It used to be that cities had more cases than rural areas. And then as migration happened, where people who are ill in cities moved to the rural areas, it increased in the rural areas. So that migration is also evident. But at the same time, you can still talk about African countries as bearing the greatest burden because of their particular socioeconomic, political circumstances, particular representation of Africa in the global discourses of disease and the like. So you mentioned something very interesting, right? How do you teach the students the differences between different places? I mean, I'm just curious, how do you do that, right? For students who basically very often have not left the United States, right? And they don't often understand the differences between, you know, countries are very significant. So how do you go about explaining kind of these differences between different places? I mean, you obviously, I assume you can't cover every country over the last, you know, 25 years, right? That would basically be impossible in a one semester kind of setting. So how do you go about making the case for them? I guess I could go back to your opening remarks on the differences between where you are and where I am and masking. And so I tend to use sort of the US to help them understand other places because this is very familiar and they can see the differences in the US between New York City and some other place in terms of attitudes toward masking and even in terms of political shifts. I could talk about the shift between the former president and the current president and their attitudes toward the pandemic, COVID pandemic, as an illustrative example. So rather than trying to demonstrate the differences within Africa as a place, I just kind of try to show them the patterns of differences and different how historical context also influence the responses to diseases and the changes in a particular place as well. So maybe to keep on zooming in on HIV in Kenya specifically, so could you maybe tell us a bit more about the experience of HIV in Kenya? And you can, I guess, draw upon both your experience growing up there and your scholarship or reading of scholarship of others in the present. So just walk us through, I mean, I guess chronologically, if you think that makes more sense or maybe through other means, if otherwise. So if I do sort of a history of the present kind of approach to it, I'll tell you that now as of this July, the United States gave Kenya several million dollars, I don't remember the exact number now, to help with their efforts to prevent HIV, treat HIV, and provide care with the goal of achieving what the United Nations Joint Program on, on AIDS calls 95, 95, 95, 95 at prevention and percent in, in prevention access, 95% in treatment, 95% in sort of care and, and support. And uh, Kenya is seen to actually be achieving that. And that's no accident. That's really because of the partnership between the US and, and other actors, Kenya sort of 
improving in its own policies, the public being involved, the civil society organizations sort of playing a critical role in moving the government. And so if we begin there and we go, how did it get there? Largely because they originally completely neglected the disease. You may recall that a little bit ago, I was talking about how by the late 1990s, 70 to 80% of hospital beds were occupied by people with HIV AIDS. And growing up, I remember seeing people who were, it was called slim disease at the time because everybody became very skinny who had it. And in Kenya, the story was that all those people were from Uganda or they were sex workers. So at the very beginning of the epidemic, it was sort of stigmatized. You're either a truck driver, a sex worker, or you are from Uganda or had been to Uganda in order to have the disease. Uh, it wasn't really attributed to uh, men who had sex with men or homosexuals. So that became sort of a, a later fact. So in Kenya, it's originally the failure of the government to respond to the disease, uh, public sort of complicity in being quiet and doing nothing about it, and it being sort of a scary, stigmatized disease before it becomes mainstream that people begin knowing people who had it. In my own family, I lost a brother who had it. And so there's, it becomes part of our discourse in everyday life. So I guess staying historically for a minute, I mean, what changes, right? Is it kind of a groundswell effort? Is it, you know, you replace, you know, one president with the next and you basically have a complete change of policy, as we know happened, for example, in the United States when it came to COVID to an extent. So, I mean, what's happening top down, bottom up, a little bit of both, a little bit of everything. Yeah, almost a little bit of everything. Daniel Arup Moy stays in office. So the pandemic at the time starts with him in office. Uh, so the first case is in the early 80s. And then he ignores the disease, kind of says it doesn't exist. By 1997, when he's still in office, they have the first sessional paper number four of 1997, which provides a framework for responding to the disease. By 1999, while he's still in office, he declares AIDS a national disaster. So he's still in office. He's the same one who previously ignored it. Now he's saying it's a national disaster. And then fast forward by the time he's leaving office, it's there's a whole infrastructure to respond to HIV AIDS, partly because the international community offers funding to HIV AIDS, which influences. So there's a, sort of a, a window to get international aid and participate. And so there's that influence as well. And then there was a national... NGO association that worked together, multiple non-governmental organizations that came together to advocate. So that also changes their discourse. And increasingly, as people became aware of their own family members, so other people who had died from the disease, it then becomes sort of uh, normalized and gets into the mainstream. The media plays a huge role as well in educating people, in highlighting the problem, highlighting the failures of the government as well. So when you say media, do you mean just news or do you also mean other types of media such as, I mean, either shows, newspapers, obviously, but maybe also movies or, or other fictional representations as well? Is that a thing at all? At the time, it was mostly radio and newspapers. And then they also used, uh, in terms of the campaigns to educate people using sort of pamphlets and sort of short videos that are moved around from sort of a community-based public education. So that helps change people's attitudes over time. Uh, but largely radio and newspapers have mobilized the people's awareness. 
the sort of stories around HIV, so like the films that get produced that also brings the story of HIV from outside the country back into Kenya. And then the reporting of external newspapers as well. Actually, there's an interesting story around the New York Times carrying a story about AIDS in Kenya that it was sort of impounded before it, it got released uh, at the very beginning when there was sort of a reluctance to accept the, the disease as a problem. And when you grew up there, so when did you realize this was a big issue? I mean, or did that happen before you came to think about these things? Yeah, so it becomes obvious to me when in the late 80s, advanced high school students actually see people who are physically ill in hospitals or when they're being transported to hospitals and they become sort of a shadow of themselves. So people who are previously very well and who are young, so they're not like an old person and they're shriveled from suffering from any number of diseases associated with uh, HIV turning into AIDS. And maybe a last question, which... I've been thinking about, for lack of a better term, but how does this influence dating, right? Just dating, I guess, both at high school, after high school, at some point, I guess, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, right? But at some point, obviously awareness increases, testing would probably become a thing. And so how and when did that happen? If you know, and how is that going on today? If you know as well. That's a fascinating perspective, almost from a disease or health and society perspective. So historically, it's also really interesting to see shifts. For So for instance, one of the things that was emerging in the late 90s in Kenya was around in my home region, the ethnic group I come from, the Luo, the historical practices around what they regarded as wife inheritance. So if a woman lost their husband, they the cousin of their husband might take over responsibility over their home and the, the including the woman and so the practice was that you'd inherit the wife and that was later on seen as one of the conduits through which uh, AIDS was spread so people who died from AIDS that their wives married a new person who didn't have it and so continued the spread and that person if they were polygamist actually then spread it on to their partner among young people dating, that became an issue as well. So whether people are willing to engage in condom use, and if you're using a condom, there's, are you using a condom because you suspect yourself or using a condom to protect yourself? So that became sort of part of the politics of the sort of dating. And now there was a period when it changed. One of the things that happened in the late 2010s was the recognition that the prevalence of HIV among young people was higher among females than among males. And that was attributed to dating cross-generationally, that the younger women were dating older men who may have been exposed. So again, thereby raising this other issue. And they were dating this older man as sort of their sugar daddy kind of situation. So again, further complicating the situation with dating and relationships and the like. So building on that, you know, discussion, which is really fascinating. I mean, have there been other cultural changes that have happened maybe in the last decade or so, or maybe going back further, if you want, related to the prevalence of HIV within the greater population, right? I mean, the dating discussion you just laid out is clearly one of them. So are there others that are, you know, well known or interesting to also talk about? Yeah, so circumcision would be another one. So, for instance, the Luo people in uh, Western Kenya 
have traditionally not circumcised their men. But then uh, when circumcision was seen to be one of the ways to prevent the spread of HIV AIDS, because there was higher prevalence among the Luo, it was taken up. And so the culture changed where men who were previously not circumcised and they were getting circumcised in their teens and 20s and 30s as a mechanism of uh, prevention. So that's a huge change. Previously, Luo people were in some cases sort of uh, ridiculed by neighboring communities for not being circumcised. And so now that also goes away because of the pandemic. The dealing with sex workers. So sex workers become formally recognized and brought into the National AIDS Control uh, Prevention Program. There's a, I think it's called NASCOP is the initials for it. And they bring sex workers to be part of the discourse around prevention. And then men who have sex with men as a key population become recognized, even though the law prohibits uh, homosexuality in Kenya, but there's the public health prevention efforts include them as a key population alongside people who used injected drugs. So I have to say this entire conversation, for lack of a better term, sounds very rational in a sense, right? I mean, making the right decision, I mean, regardless of, of any cultural issues. And I mean, I can't help but think about present day COVID, right? That would be the obvious equivalent here. And I'm trying to figure out, again, maybe going back to, I think, one of Merle's questions, how come all those different parts of society were willing to put aside their differences, put aside their, their issues with, I guess, masculinity with, with regards to circumcision, put aside their issues with homosexuality, and just try to solve this, which is in the best interest of everyone, right? Yeah, I guess I would say crisis. Sometimes crisis forces people to change their attitudes and do things they wouldn't otherwise do. So once... Uh, HIV is declared a national disaster in late 1990s, in 1999 in Kenya. It forces the, a shift. You can't declare something a disaster and function as though there's no disaster. You have to think outside the box. Global trends in terms of knowledge, and you're rightly to note that it's reasonable to figure out what needs to be done, how does it need to be done, who needs to do it. That actually changes the attitudes. I must say there's still some resistance. There are still people who resist the idea that uh, recognizing injected drug users, recognizing men who have sex with men are sort of genuine members of the society that need to be treated with uh, support and care and provided the necessary tools to be well. So that's still, it's not completely, but there's a recognition within the public health sphere that those communities need to be brought in. And that's sort of a, an international practice that is being integrated and sort of adopted at the local level. So in the present, what would be the current attitude towards HIV? I mean, how is HIV seen today? I mean, are we still in this very positive, rational phase? And is it supposed to continue? I mean, do you see a trend that, I mean, will continue in the foreseeable future until we reach this 95, 95, 95, or maybe maintain this 95, 95, 95 plan? Yeah, my sense is that it's it's still with us. And that if we look at the civil society organizations, we look at advocacy groups, we look at the Joint United Nations program on AIDS or national AIDS programs, the need for ongoing prevention is necessary. The need for ongoing care is necessary. The need for ongoing treatment is necessary. And the need for further research, the question you asked earlier on, to maybe get some treatment, uh, like sort of cure, so that it's not just a treatment, like sort of ongoing treatment. 
there are some challenges around sort of the dependency structures uh, that gave you the case of Kenya receiving millions of dollars. PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, that requires Kenya to completely sort of be dependent on the U.S. to operationalize this health intervention. So that's something that needs to change. As far as people's attitudes toward AIDS, I think on HIV, the stigma is gone now. It's very clear that the stigma is gone. People are living a long time. People are living long, normal lives with the disease. So that changes the way people with the disease are treated. But it's still obvious to people that it changes the way you live if you have to take this pill every day, if you have to occasionally be sick. Uh, so there's need for uh, continuing heightening the need for prevention. And is Kenya's success in dealing with the overall HIV pandemic, has that influenced other countries in the region or maybe further away? Yeah, it's interesting. I've always joked about Kenya's successes in the sense that it's interesting to have success after failure. If you have to have a disaster first before you can succeed, uh, is that really success? But Kenya is now a model. The Joint United Nations program thinks of it as a success and tries to learn from it. Kenya has the AIDS tribunal that I spoke about earlier on that has been highlighted in international journals as the only AIDS tribunal that protects the rights of people with AIDS in the world so that there is something that countries can learn in terms of figuring out ways of preventing people from being evicted or from being forced out of their jobs because they have the HIV AIDS or being denied a chance to be in school. So that's something that could be learned. Absolutely. So yeah, there are some lessons that can be learned, including the lesson to not fail first before you succeed. I think that that's a lesson that, and not just for AIDS, but for other epidemics or other new uh, challenges arise for countries. So one thing, you know, a number of historians on this podcast have said is they've refused to claim that they can see the future, although I like to think historians are the best at this, although this is very dubious. But since you're not a historian, could you maybe shed light, give us a clue, whatever, you know, metaphor you want to use? How do you see kind of the future of Kenya with regards to HIV and AIDS moving forward? So I think of the future of AIDS uh, moving forward as linked to the larger discourse on health in all policies, that AIDS in and of itself can't really tell us much about Kenya, that we also need to think about sort of education policies, workplace policies, other policies that are adjacent to health policies that may be helpful. You know, Kenya has a part of Agenda 2030, which is part of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Kenya has its own sort of uh, goals for 2030 to sort of build that into sort of a transformative approach to education, empowerment, well-being, sustainability more generally, and that AIDS is part of it. So as I was critiquing earlier on, the over-reliance on international support, while partnership is great and is much appreciated. There's need for endogenizing some of these things so that you actually can support it and sustain it. So that's one area where Kenya might have to think, if you remove the US support, can you still provide treatment for the over 1.2 million people who want treatment today? And how do you sustain that in a country whose resources are limited and needs are very high in other areas? Yeah, I think it's a good point that we don't usually consider when we think about countries coping with this or that disease. And maybe to kind of start wrapping up, do you see, I mean, from your perspective, did Kenya learn anything from its HIV experience with regards to its COVID experience? 
were lessons learned more broadly? I mean, as you said earlier, more broadly beyond the like more limited context of HIV? It's hard to draw a straight line from the one to the other, except the capacity of the country to anticipate crisis, I think, has improved so that there's sort of a, a heightened awareness that things can go wrong. The response to the COVID pandemic, for instance, while laudable and, and remarkable, was also characterized by some human rights abusers. So, for instance, you know, I've showed some pictures to friends of mine here where they were trying to contain people. They, they, Kenya had a curfew at the beginning phases of the pandemic where people were supposed to be at home after sunset and were not supposed to be in the streets before dawn. So that that kind of thing, which led to a misunderstanding of I, I remember hearing from my son who lives in Kenya saying that when he was at the marketplace, he had people saying, well, you should go home now because COVID comes at night because of the idea that the coffee was a nighttime coffee or supposed to be a daytime coffee. So the strategy itself, while aimed at sort of reducing congregations and reducing possibility of transmission, wasn't backed up by sort of a, a well thought out message to the public educating them about this is the nature of the disease. This is why I want you to go home. I related to it were human rights abuses by the police who would flog people to disperse them. Similar sort of images were circulating in South Africa, for instance, where the police and this military were actually kind of essentially abusing people who in the name of public health. So that's something that I'm concerned about, that even as we address health issues, pandemics, that we do it in a way that, or oh, I shouldn't say we, because I'm not part of that establishment, as societies respond to these pandemics or problems, that there is sort of a cognizance of the importance of protecting human rights and making sure that actually the public can support these efforts rather than resist them in the long run. Yeah, that reminds me, Lee, we should probably like collect stories in different countries and different subregions of places on kind of things that happened early on in COVID as people were confused to use moving forward. I mean, when Alex was just talking, I was reminded of Chris DeVette telling us about South Africa early on, if you recall, and he said that they closed all the places you could buy cigarettes. So it basically became a giant black market trade in, in cigarettes because they hadn't thought that through. And the same thing happened, I think it was Pennsylvania, if I recall, where the state liquor stores, because they're state liquor stores, closed in Pennsylvania. So you had, you know, mile-long lines as the stories go, of people lining up to basically get shopping carts full of liquor because who knew how long you wouldn't be able to get liquor. And if you're an alcoholic, it's actually a health issue, but for everyone else, right? As we all know, I have a nice wine collection because I started drinking large amounts of wine during COVID. So, you know, you need your alcohol on a more flippant version of the more serious point you just made, Alex. So I think on that funny note off a, you know, more tragic note, we just wanted to thank you so much, Alex, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy and a pleasure. Yeah, great. Thanks again. Right, Merle. So I thought that was a really interesting interview. I mean, both for personal knowledge and also maybe for giving me some ideas about how to teach AIDS in what, like two or three months once we get to that point in our semester. And maybe to start that discussion, it seems to me that the students in classrooms today, which on my side, I mean, the students I teach, I would say are probably in their early 20s. That's probably the average age. So 
they're always interested in HIV AIDS. And I think that for them, it's something that they probably heard about that happened just before their time. They didn't really experience it themselves. I mean, having grown up basically entirely in the 21st century where AIDS was not that big of a deal here in Israel after the 1980s and 1990s. So it's, it's just a different mindset, but it's still interesting to see that this is probably the, I mean, other than COVID, of course, probably the disease that they're most interested about from my perspective at the moment. Yeah, I think this was literally in my mind, especially a lot of the teaching stuff as we were talking, just because I actually did teach HIV AIDS on Tuesday, right? We're recording this on a Saturday. So literally four or five days ago. So I was thinking about actually how some of my students reacted. And I'd say two things. One, actually the disease that was more in the forefront of my students' minds than HIV AIDS was probably Ebola, because that was a big deal in 2014 and 2018. So they can actually remember that. That's actually really interesting. I mean, I would not have expected that. So Ebola, which had almost no effect, no literal effect on the United States was bigger than HIV, which is like this major change in the 80s. Wow. Yeah, I would say Ebola. No one said this because I taught Ebola actually on Thursday. But I think the general thing they said to me was they remember seeing, you know, the news, right? They couldn't remember exactly where in the news, what form of it, where they saw it. But there was a lot of news reporting, especially in 2018, for very political reasons about Ebola and 2014 as well, right? Because it was something that was, quote unquote, going to hit the United States because there were a couple of cases in the US. And do you think maybe that there are some reluctance towards HIV AIDS? Can it be related to ideology in Oklahoma at all? No, I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think it's thinking back on my education, right, in high school, when it comes to HIV AIDS, right, which was past the peak of, you know, really the imminence of it in the United States, right? Because this was the late 90s, early 2000s already. HIV AIDS, as far as I know, and I haven't gone into high school curricula that frequently, but thinking back my own experience and talking to all my students, it's part of a package of health that's taught, right? Wear a condom, practice safe sex. One of the outcomes of that, if you don't, could be HIV AIDS, right? That's the only way I think it's kind of taught in the United States, at least based on my class and my own experience, right, which would seem to suggest something not, you know, completely wrong. Obviously, I went to high school in a very different place than Oklahoma. So that's why I think it is. I think it just has to do with how it's taught, which I think the great kind of moment of realization for my students, right, because I taught, you know, one class on this, I probably teach it as two moving forward, just from having talked to Alex today. But, you know, I taught it as here's what it was like in the 80s and 90s in the United States. And now did you know that it's like this huge, massive, awful disease in Africa? And this is, you know, still a huge pandemic. And all the students went, oh, I didn't know any of that. Right. And they're actually quite interested. Yeah. And so listening to what you're saying and what Alex was saying earlier in the interview, I think what this shows us again is the power of media, right? The power of media to concentrate our attention on specific issues and kind of ignore other issues. This kind of came up earlier on during COVID. There was like this brief debate of COVID compared to the flu, the flu being like this normal thing that kills people, but it doesn't matter because it's normal and we don't need to pay attention to that. But it seems to be more or less the same here, right? So, and I think that your example was actually a really good example 
So people were super concerned about Ebola being a huge thing now, ignoring the much larger elephant in the room, which is AIDS going on in Africa, regardless of Ebola. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure it's just, quote unquote, the media, right? I think it's a general, you know, view in the United States, right? That most people don't look outside the United States for what's happening in other places, certainly not in Africa, right? If they're looking anywhere, it's Western Europe, If you know. I had to make a guess, right? But most people just aren't aware. We live in a giant country, unlike you, like, you know, and so there's so much difference within the country and variance that I think it's actually quite hard. I mean, Alex kind of pointed this out, right? How he teaches, you know, Africa is not a country, right? But the fact that he has to like kind of teach that clearly to some students is pretty telling in and of itself. I don't know if you know, but there's several memes on on Africa being a country. So that's funny. But I think that maybe return to the previous point, the other aspect here is threat, right? So I would say that with regards to Ebola, the media was able to create a threat or at least a perception of threat with regards to Ebola, whereas HIV AIDS is no longer perceived as a threat. I mean, even if a person brings HIV AIDS into the country, I mean, you can still treat that. So it's it's not as serious. I mean, you can yeah. say the same about Ebola, I guess, but still. Yeah, I mean, that's ultimately what happened with the few cases in the United States with Ebola is they were relatively easily treated such as they could be treated. What it has to do with, again, is I don't think it's a media blowing it out of proportion. It's a newness kind of wow factor, right, that the media then reports on, right? Reporting on, you know, the success of Kenya's program, right, and changes over time and how much, you know, PEPFAR is done. I mean, as far as I'm aware, like no one even talks about PEPFAR, right? Even though if you want to basically boil down, you know, George W. Bush's administration, what did he do that was good? I would actually say probably on the positive side is PEPFAR, right? You know, most of the rest of this foreign policy, I think we can agree is problematic. We'll leave it at that to stay non-political. And, you know, as someone who doesn't agree with some of his domestic policy, I think a lot of his domestic policy was deeply problematic. But certainly PEPFAR was a definite success, but it's never really talked about. Yeah. And I think the interview also, I mean, this wasn't really a theme that we kind of zoomed in on, but the entire international aid aspect, especially in countries in the global South, does play a, a large role, right? So Alex mentioned that international aid was a clear incentive for Kenya to change its ways and, and deal with this which is not something you would receive or, or see, I guess, in most wealthy Western countries and the global North, broadly speaking. Yeah, but I think this interview, which is kind of why I was very excited at the top to have it, right, gives me and hopefully you, because you're actually going to teach on this before I do again, a way into not just lay out this dichotomy. It was bad in these places. Now it's bad in these other places. But you can be like, yeah, it might be bad in these other places. But here's how things have changed in those places as well, right? Laying out, as Alex put it, right? There was success after disaster, right? And he was obviously, you know, someone who was in some ways critical of that. Although I would say, right, that is an ideal situation, right? If you just kind of put it in a vacuum, right? You would say, if things go wrong in your country or in wherever you live, wouldn't you hope that you change course and make things better? right? That is ultimately kind of the goal. Yeah, I think we might want to differentiate here between response, which apparently was horrible in Kenya at the beginning. That's one variable, but the other variable would be 
I mean, learning or learning capabilities, which I think they actually ended up doing pretty well on. And again, even if Alex was pretty critical on that. And again, the obvious analogy here would be COVID, where our responses, broadly speaking, were not great, but there also doesn't seem to be any substantial learning at a societal level on this. Yeah, there seems to be no attempts to structurally change public health, right? As far as I'm aware, versus it sounded like at least, you know, when he was describing the changes, I think he even used the word structural or infrastructural changes at one point in his discussion, he pointed out, you know, yeah, there are some, you know, changes that happened at the top and at the bottom, and it was kind of simultaneous, but there were long-term infrastructural changes put in place eventually having, you know, quote unquote, if we want to use the overwrought phrase, learned lessons from the past. And there's also that, but also just the cultural changes, right? So having an entire ethnic group, I mean, I guess not like every single person, right? But having an entire ethnic group change their attitudes towards something as personal as circumcision. I mean, that's a major change. And, And I think you must get people to agree to do that. And Overall, they learned. They learned that this is what they need to do. And again, we, broadly speaking, have not learned during COVID. Well, I'll just say that I, for one, probably always going to wear a mask on a plane moving forward. So, you know, that's a personal cultural change. I see no reason to not mask on a plane, (laughs) considering I always got sick on planes before this. So why not mask (laughs) on a plane? But that's, you know, a personal thing. But I do think there'll be a certain percentage of the population that will actually just always do that. On a completely flippant note. Yeah. And maybe the last point, I mean, again, following on, on what Alex was saying during the interview, when I asked him about HIV and COVID, and he said that HIV, I mean, changed things in Kenya because it was like a huge disaster, maybe to continue from there on. I mean, maybe COVID was not a big enough disaster for us to learn from it, right? I mean, it did change our lives, but it, maybe it wasn't as serious or it wasn't as present in our lives. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll depend on ultimately where you are, right? I don't think we were operating at a very national, here's the changes in Kenya, right? I'm sure it's very different when you peel back into different regions and different places, just as I think it is in the United States. I think there are definite changes in ways in which different segments of the population act or are allowed to act or what they do. But, you know, we'll see how that plays out, is what I would say. So, Leaving that kind of serious conversation aside, although maybe the next conversation is also actually kind of seriously, and there's a serious point I could ask, which is the World Cup starts tomorrow. Normally, you know, I would just say, oh, are you going to watch? But there is a serious political dimension to the whole thing that's happening. So are you going to watch the World Cup or are you not going to watch out of protest? Or do you feel some affinity, as I think the leader of Qatar has said, you know, people are hating his country because, you know, this is the first Arab World Cup. And thus, you know, this is all about anti-Middle Eastern, anti-Arab, you know, views. Okay, I'll start answering. I will watch the World Cup. As far as I know, I mean, I haven't actually looked into this in great detail, but the little I have seen is pretty open about the massive issues, human rights issues of various types that can be associated with this World Cup in Qatar. But on the other hand, I would also say that this is not the first time these accusations have been made on various other places and various other sports events. So 
I mean, yes, it is horrible, but it's also something that that seems even naturalized at this point. Out of curiosity, what sports events are you thinking of? So I mean, the obvious answers here would be both in Russia and in China. In both of those, there have been many, let's say, voices talking about human rights abuses in, in various different ways, right? So whether having people overwork, even die in certain places and times, I think maybe this is not a sports event, but other Gulf countries around the Persian Gulf, I mean, have also been associated with human rights abuses, exploitation of workers, worker mortality when, for example, building various skyscrapers. That hasn't stopped tourism and critique seems to disappear. And I'm not saying it's good. I'm not condoning this. But again, it seems that this is relatively normal, I would say. It's depressing, but that's what it is. So I would say two things. One, I agree with you on an overarching level, which is to say large international sports organizations, whether that's FIFA, whether that's the IOC who runs the Olympics, are unmitigated bastions of corruption and evil. I don't even yes, think that's yeah, probably... for sure. No, no, for sure. That That's for sure. I mean, and, and it, this is known, so it's not anything new. I think any Olympics I remember, there have always been accusations of, I mean, this or that kind of corruption at different levels. Yeah. What I would say makes Qatar unique over the other ones is, number one, having listened to a great podcast called World Corrupt by the Men in Blazers, the six-episode arc, where they discuss the Qatar World Cup bid. And basically, they have this prosecutor on who's worked in the Obama Department of Justice, and he rose up through the ranks in the New Jersey U.S. District Attorney's Office, right? So basically, he's dealing with like mob cases and like hitmen. And he comes on and gives this great quote, I'm going to paraphrase it, where he says, like, I came up through the New Jersey USDA's office and I've never seen so much corruption in my life, referring to Qatar, because he was there at the bid and literally saw people getting suitcases full of cash as they left the hotel room with the Qataris. <laughs> well, uh, okay, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Again, I mean, who knows, right? Who knows these things? But it at least fits with the stereotype. I mean, the stereotype may or may not be true. I'm not going to comment on that, but it at least fits on the stereotype. I will say that I found amusing the accusations. I have no idea if this is true or not, but that the Qataris have paid the, like, I think seven Ecuadorian players, again, millions of dollars to lose the first match. So that has been funny. And another thing that I've heard, and I actually have not looked into, I guess this is true. You probably are more on top of your soccer game than I am. But I have heard that Qatar, I mean, after they won the bid, they started massively investing and in just bringing in players, naturalizing them, so making them part of a team to be competitive. And that's also fascinating, right? Because sports is so related to politics at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, this podcast I listened to, right? Not the term they made up, but they call it sports washing, right? Where you use sports to basically wash <laughs> away your political sins. I mean, I think at the end of the day, I'll say two things to wrap up this segment. One, you know, we have to go back when Qatar got the World Cup and number one said they were going to do it in the summer in Qatar, which obviously <laughs> has not played out. So now they've messed up the schedules of all the rest of the leagues and kind of made this weird World Cup. And number two, right, when they got this World Cup, everyone said, this is a team that's never qualified for the World Cup. They've never wanted to play soccer. It's a 
country the size of Connecticut, right? You know, it's basically this mini little country that is so obviously corrupt. I mean, Seth Blatter, who was then the head of FIFA, was basically indicted on corruption charges because everyone knew like there's corruption and then there's like, come on, guys, like, no, <laughs> <laughs> let's not do that amount of corruption. Right. So I think that's the issue. And then it's certainly the, you know, 6,500 migrant workers who have been killed building the stadiums, at least 6,500 migrant workers, I should say, is what also makes this much worse. Yeah. To wrap things up, I will say that maybe Qatar is a small country and all the issues you said are probably true. But it also, I mean, as someone who lives in the greater Middle East region right now, Qatar, despite its limits, its real limits, has over the past decades, at least, punched way beyond its weight in international politics. And I think this is related to that. Yeah, no, that's perfectly fine. And I think that's obviously true. I was just making the point that, you know, when you're this corrupt, right, no one's saying the Russians didn't bribe everyone. The Russians bribed everyone for the last World Cup. That's pretty clear. But when you're this corrupt and you're going to pretend you're going to have a World Cup in 120 degree summer days, right? You're going to air condition the whole stadium, right? That's what the actual <laughs> bit said. You know, everyone goes around and goes, seriously, seriously. We'll see how this continues. I guess that on this note, we can probably conclude the episode. We'd like to thank our sponsors, as usual, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem for funding the podcast and our team. The team behind this, who has been working behind the scenes, our sound editor, Amitai Barlavi, and our webmaster, Deirdre Kanati. Until next time, stay safe, keep masking on airplanes so you don't get sick, and let us know what you think about the World Cup.